Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Stop. Kia mai. Welcome back to a brand new season of Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. During 2018, I'm looking forward to bringing you lots of stories about science and the environment from around New Zealand. Later on tonight, we'll be hearing about engineering buildings that rock during an earthquake but don't sustain damage. But first, we're going to the dogs. If you're a dog owner or even just a wannabe dog owner, and I know there are plenty of you out there, you'll have your own opinions about how smart your pooch is, whether or not dogs have emotions like you and I do, and how in tune our canine friends are with us. Alex Taylor has some thoughts and ideas on the subject, and he's putting them to the test. He's an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Auckland, and he's well known for his work on animal intelligence, especially with birds. Alex and students Rebecca Hassel, Amalia Bastos and Patrick Nylands are putting pet dogs through their paces in the clever canine lab. And I'm off to find out what it's all about. Initially I was really interested in bird intelligence because we kind of thought birds were bird-brained but the last kind of 10-15 years has shown that maybe they're brainy birds instead and I'm really curious about how intelligence evolves generally so you know why it is that we are so smart whether other animals share some aspects of our intelligence those kind of things. Now you're well known for your work with New Caledonian crows so tell me about that work just in a snapshot. Sure. So I've been working with the crows for around 10 years. Um, I was always fascinated by them because they kind of use and make tools, and they make uh, hook tools, which is something that no other species apart from human does. Amazing. And now you've turned your attention from two-legged creatures to four-legged creatures. Yeah, absolutely. The dogs has always been a, a major fascination of mine. I'm really curious, always have been, about you know how dogs are thinking. Uh, I grew up myself with uh, black Labradors, and I think it was one of the animals that really just sparked my fascination with animal intelligence in general. You know, I'd always be curious about like you know what was going on between their ears how are they really thinking and so you know I started working with the birds because they were so underappreciated in terms of their intelligence and now I've kind of come full circle and I'm I'm back to working with dogs because it you know in the last 10 years just like with the birds we've got this newfound appreciation that dogs do some really intelligent things when it comes to their like social awareness their social intelligence uh, and I got very curious about trying to uncover something about the bond between owners and their dogs and kind of what's going on there. Studying the psychology of dogs and their emotional bonds with their owners is complicated and involves a lot of dogs. More than a hundred have so far come along to be tested, and today it's the turn of a five year old black Labrador. So I am Rowena Monsell, and my dog is Wilma. Hello, Wilma, and what's Wilma's history? Uh, so Wilma is a withdrawn guide dog. She started life on the guide dog program and she puppy walked with us 
and she did four months of her six months worth of training before she was withdrawn and now she's a pet. What's motivated you to come along today to be part of this experiment? I can't remember where I saw it, probably Facebook Um, and I love dogs and animals in general and thought why not? She's a very enthusiastic volunteer. She really is, she's lovely. Some dogs are amazing, some dogs um, have a really good time but do their own thing, so we'll just see how she goes. She's very intense sniffing the mats, she, isn't she's she? She's really into the mats, yeah, like this is about as intense as it gets. I mean, obviously the whole space has had a lot of dogs in, so it is very, very, very interesting for a dog. Wilma's off giving the clever canine laboratory a good sniff. And PhD students Amalia and Rebecca are talking with Rowena to decide exactly which experiments will suit the dog's personality. As an ex-guide dog, Wilma's been trained not to chase balls. So that automatically rules out one test. But there are plenty of others. is interested in kind of empathy and this idea that dogs seem to be sensitive to when we cry. So what kind of reaction would she normally have if she's seen you or a family member cry? She is very sucky. She loves her cuddles and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think she probably would come up and like have a yeah like have a look and see whether you're okay. Okay, that's fantastic. At the moment, Amalia and Rebecca are both studiously ignoring Wilma. So the idea here is that the two experimenters aren't allowed to interact with the dog? Yes, so these are going to be one person being um, friendly to a dog and one person kind of ignoring them. So this is what we're going to do with Rebecca and Amalia today. So what they don't do beforehand is bias that by interacting with the dog for the first kind of quarter of an hour. So the antisocial person takes the dog in the room and they're eating small teasers. And what they do is they, they make the dog sit and then they eat the Maltese themselves. <laughs> And obviously we would never give chocolates to dogs anyway, but, uh, and then they're also just the rest of the time they're ignoring the dog. Whereas what the, the positive person is doing is, the positive person is eating Maltesers, but themselves, and not giving any food to the dog, but then they're also playing with the dog, stroking it, having a nice time. So this is our kind of good cop, bad cop. Each stage of the experiment is carefully timed, and the whole process is also filmed on several cameras, so it can be analysed later. Okay, and put it away. Amalia goes off into a small side room with the woman and proceeds to ignore her. She's followed by good cop Rebecca, who gets to play with the dog. Did you enjoy that? Get down. The next stage of this experiment is to see whether the dog shows more empathy to someone who's been nice to it or to someone who ignored it. Amalia and Rebecca are going to be sitting on the floor and they're both going to be giving their best um, Oscar-worthy <laughs> crying. Begin crying three, two, one, and go. <laughs> Would you like to explain what just? Uh, yeah, it's another another perfect result. So the the dog paid no attention whatsoever to either person crying and wandered around the room smelling and looking for treats. So about about all we've been seeing so far, this is at the pilot stage of something that we it'd be lovely if it did work, but I have seen this before with lab, with labs that they just kind of get on with it and look for the food. So that's but that's the whole thing with an experiment. You're not always going to get the results that you think or oh, expect. Gosh, no. I mean, and this is very exploratory. Like, I, I know I... It would be amazing if dogs did this, but I would, I would have only put the odds at about 10% anyway, but it's just one of these fun, quick things that we can try out with, with the dogs and see if there's anything there. But yes, sometimes, sometimes your ideas work and sometimes you, you go on to the next thing, you know. So Wilma didn't respond to Amalia or Rebecca crying. 
But if they both call her, who will she choose? What we've been actually seeing is the dogs tend to approach the antisocial person more, and we think this might be because dogs have a tendency actually to just want to kind of form that social bond with someone who's not been nice to them. And that's what she did, straight to the yeah, antisocial yeah, person. Yeah, antisocial person. Now, it's interesting, that thing, because quite often if you're in a room full of people, the person who's ignoring the animal, actually whether it's a dog or a cat, that's the person they'll go yeah. to. Right, so again, this is a totally unexpected result. We, we really thought that the dog would prefer to go towards the person that's been nice to them, but it's definitely going opposite what you intuitively might assume, that you know, as humans we're nice to people that are nice to us, but then also you, know, you can think about your own experiences and think, well, often if people try to push us away or they're not that nice to us, we do try to kind of impress them and, and be nice to them. So whether dogs are doing something similar is uh, a thing that we'll have to look into in future. Next up is an experiment about jealousy. Some of the questions we're interested in concern dog emotions. We're really interested in whether dogs feel guilt and they feel jealousy. And this is an area where if you ask owners, you know, 70, 80 percent of owners will say, look, you know, I think my dog is showing guilt or jealousy. And we're, we're really curious to kind of probe that take those anecdotes from owners and start trying to actually do some nice science there. So there's been a little bit, you know, maybe five, ten studies on guilt in dogs, and it's rather ambiguous, and then only one study's looked at jealousy in dogs so far. So we have some really nice studies we're trying to do where we're trying to probe, you know, if dogs get jealous, and looking at things like, you know, do dogs make inferences about jealousy? So, for example, you know, when it comes to human jealousy for example, with our romantic partner. We don't need to see our romantic partner actually making contact with someone else. If we see them, you know, suspiciously go into a room with someone else, we might feel jealousy, right? And so what we're doing with the dogs is something similar where the owner is sitting next to a toy dog. The dog doesn't know it's a toy at this point. And we want to see if they're able to essentially mentally join the dots and realise that they must be giving their affection to this dog. So we're really interested in whether, just like humans, we make those inferences, we make those mental jumps about uh, things like jealousy. Um, if you're in a social situation, say a park, and there's another dog, the dog approaches, and you pet the other dog, does she approach and try to get in there at all? Or? Uh, she is a jealous type. She is definitely the alpha in our house. There are three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if she thinks that someone's going to encroach on her, she gets a bit kind of... <laughs> um, but off lead, on the beach, most of the time she couldn't care less about the other dogs. Yeah, OK, cool. So what you're going to see um, is we have the, uh, the owner... And we're going to get some uh, toy dogs and some uh, other objects. So we're using furry cylinders that look, they don't look like an actual animal, but they've got a similar kind of consistency to a toy. They're soft, they're fluffy, these kind of things. And we're going to see how the dog reacts when they see the owner either petting uh, a toy dog or petting this foam roll, essentially, let's call it. There's a few stages to this test, first involving Rebecca, who the dog doesn't know very well. Then it's repeated with Wilma's owner. So how does Wilma react when she sees Rowena fussing over what appears to be another dog? From a few metres away, Wilma reacts very strongly. But then... I don't think Wilma's that much of a jealous dog. (laughs) This is just one of those studies where... So what we've just observed was Rowena patting the, the pretend dog and Wilma was giving a really strong response. You know, she was pulling on her lead, mm. she was whimpering and she wanted to be there. But as soon as she was allowed to go there, 
she just started sniffing it. Yeah, so with other dogs, we've seen a lot more kind of focus on the dog pushing itself between the, the, the toy dog and the owner, but... Um, yeah. Um, not Wilma. Not Wilma. Not, less so Wilma. Not the jealous yeah. kind. <laughs> now, I'm curious, Rowena, as the owner of this dog who appears in the experiments to be completely the unjealous type, is that what she's like in real life? Uh, no. I, I live with two other dogs, and if you're talking to one of them, then she will definitely push her way in to try in between me and the others. And Yeah, she definitely wants most of my attention as opposed to the other dogs wanting the attention. Interesting. You're not stupid, are you, though? You realise that that's not real. <laughs> hey. Hey. She said I wasn't fooled. <laughs> no, not at all. You're pretty smart little cookie, aren't you? So in terms of this experiment with the dogs, Wilma didn't... The first time she saw one of those toy dogs, she looked very convinced. Very convinced, yeah. Um, and yeah. then she looked increasingly less convinced. Yeah, yeah, and that is definitely what we're finding. And we find that a lot with experiments, it's always a, an issue if you're running multiple trials then order effects do come in and this one is a particularly uh, key one for that one because obviously yeah initially they're just the, the i guess the outline of the dog is enough to fool them and even in the first sniffing that when you release them they go around and they sniff the tail and the ears which are the sort of areas of scent that they would be interested in so they're still kind of fooled but then once the dog doesn't respond or anything then yeah they're, they're absolutely not convinced and again we have this some dogs are just super quick at picking it up other dogs are convinced the whole way along and you see like those are the ones that work really well for this experiment so it's not it's not even so you we... actually quite like the dumb dogs it's, yeah it's, it's like i said it's that sweet spot between because the one that's completely dumb is not paying any attention is terrible so you kind of want your medium intelligence dogs those are the ones that really get us the good results at least with some of these these ones where it's more about emotion and sort of like these deeper emotional secondary emotion things rather than higher level intelligence uh so yeah it's basically not your wonder dogs it's your i'm quite smart and i'm going to have a think about it but i can be fooled Looking for an emotion in animals is a really fraught area. So what we're trying to do is show whether dogs have certain signatures of human jealousy. And the idea is that we, we build up um, a number of different signatures. We search them, we look to see if they exist in, in dogs, and we can kind of make this far more nuanced argument, not saying dogs feel jealousy, but saying something like, we've shown that dogs show three of the five signatures of human jealousy. And this is a way to kind of approach the problem of you know, animal emotion, which is so closely linked to animal consciousness, which we really can't get at with the scientific method. So we can kind of approach that kind of like side-on, as it were, and get some kind of uh, measurement of how similar uh, a dog may be feeling to a human without actually really saying anything about the content of that feeling, of their subjective you know, awareness. Thanks, Alex. That was Alex Taylor, and he's at the University of Auckland. Alex is a Rutherford Discovery Fellow, and in 2015 he was awarded the Prime Minister's McDiamond Emerging Scientist Award. A big thanks too to PhD students Rebecca Hassel, Amalia Bastos and Patrick Nylands. And thanks and woof to Wilma the Black Labrador and her owner Rowena Monsell. Kate Fakaronga mai koe ki tato au horihori ki te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This is Our Changing World. I'm Alison Balance, and now, how buildings stand up to earthquakes is of huge interest to us. It's been very much on our minds since the Christchurch earthquake sequence began, leading, of course, to the demolition of many buildings, followed by extensive rebuilding. The University of Canterbury is well known for its earthquake engineering, and among its experts is mechanical engineer 
Jeff Rogers. Last year, Jeff won the Cooper Award, which is the Royal Society Te Aparangi's Early Career Research Excellence Award for Technology, Applied Science and Engineering. I'm off to ask him, how did we used to design buildings to withstand earthquakes and what can we do differently now? The thinking has been that in a large earthquake, a building can't be designed to be entirely damage-free, so it's been to accept that damage will occur and, and carefully manage where that damage occurs within the building. It's what's referred to as a hierarchy of strength, so making sure that the, the weakest parts are where you can tolerate damage and that that damage doesn't lead to the structure collapsing. It's what's sort of termed the life safety design principle or the sacrificial damage approach. And that's that's really been around protecting lives, preventing collapse, and it, it has, by and large, achieved that objective very well. The downside is that it leads to widespread demolition. And, of course, the repair or the demolition and rebuild costs are, are huge and the, the downtime for the city is significant. So we've seen that in Christchurch, but it's also been seen in other developed places worldwide. Uh, Northridge in '94, that's um, an area of Los Angeles. Uh, Kobe in Japan in '95, And really the, the, the research area accepts that a, a new approach is needed. You talked about sacrificial elements, so what ends up getting sacrificed? What's, what do you need to keep versus what are you able to lose? So the key thing is around the, the horizontal elements, the, the beams that support the floors, um, where they connect into the columns, so the columns being the vertical members that carry all the forces down to the foundation, that the beams are designed to be, uh, to be damaged and start to, to give way at a force less than that, which will cause damage to the column, uh, because if you lose the column, then you lose your primary um, gravity carrying system that goes down to the foundation so it's very important to make sure that, that those um, columns remain undamaged and, and keep the building standing, carefully managing the, the design such that the beams will will be damaged and, and, and yield and give way um, before they cause any damage to the columns So you're taking a different approach with several different elements, do you want to describe how what you're doing is different? So there's a lot of research worldwide on uh, low damage structural design methods and there's this underlying premise in earthquake engineering where strength doesn't equal performance. If you just put some bracing in and make a building more rigid, you actually significantly increase the acceleration that will be felt by occupants. So that has a problem in terms of the amount of force that everything has to be designed to transmit but also in terms of um, the accelerations which are felt by the occupants and the contents. So it's quite a d- difficult design balance. You look at the, the frequency of the way in which the ground typically shakes and the um, period of the building, and there's this complex interaction. And we can't modify the way in which the gap ground will shake. That's the, the hand that we've been dealt. But we can modify the way in which structures do respond to that shaking. And the main focus worldwide, um, there's a few types of different... Uh, anti-seismic design, so ways in which buildings can respond well in earthquakes. Things like base isolation are very effective. Base isolation, that's what they've got at Te Papa in it Wellington? Is. Yes, so there's a few different things. There's the lead rubber bearings, um, which obviously Bill Robinson from Robinson Seismic was famous for. There's also things like friction pendulum bearings, which essentially use a, a concave disc with a, a, a puck in there, but like a, a hockey puck, which transmit forces but allow the building to slide. Um, so there's a, a few different specific designs in terms of how that isolation's provided, but the key thing is that there's a, an isolation plane where the building can basically slide horizontally independent of the ground. And that overall works very well. Um, there are some restrictions, though. The building has to be a reasonable aspect ratio, like a, a very 
um, tall, narrow building isn't well suited to be base isolated uh, because of the overturning moment that can, the, the isolators don't tend to cope well with uplift. Uh, a shorter and squatter building with a the wider foundation that's not as high is a much better candidate for, for base isolation. So is perfect for that? Taipapa is perfect. And it's also the thing with Taipapa is also on a flat ground. So um, if, a, for example, on a hillside, uh, it might be hard to get a, a flat isolation plane that the building can say. Base isolation does work very well, but there are some buildings where it's, it's not necessarily a good candidate. The other thing that's been a, a big focus of a lot of uh, research here in New Zealand and worldwide has been around uh, rocking systems. So having accepting that buildings will move, allowing them to move, but carefully managing how that happens. So it's a, it's a very small amount of, of gap opening that occurs at structural connections. So rather than um, making them as one rigid block and, and forcing damage to occur when they move, is to actually have a jointed system where there's, there's two different components there that are connected basically through a steel tendon and that can be, have a clamping force. So in a low level of earthquake, the building responds basically like a traditional structure and is one continuous block. But then in a larger earthquake, when a, a certain level of demand is reached, um, it can actually open up and have some, some controlled motion at those, at those joints. And that changes the period of vibration of the building. It, it lengthens the period and it, it alters the way in which the, the building is excited by the ground shaking. So is that better suited to particular styles of building if you know base isolation worked best on low squat buildings what's this one good for it's good for a range of buildings um everything from a few stories tall it doesn't get tend to get used for really tall buildings um but anything up to sort of 10 or 12 floors or sometimes in some cases beyond that um it's it's really looking at just a, a way of having a building that can actually deflect and, and, and move in an earthquake, um, but do so in a way that's, that's very low damage. The catch-22 here is that the conventional wisdom, uh, the conventional sacrificial damage approach, that damage actually absorbs a lot of energy. So to, to bend reinforcing steel and break concrete and, and do all that damage to the structure actually takes a, a lot of... It's a lot of work to do that, and it absorbs a lot of energy doing that. So if we take away that damage from a building we possibly introduce a problem where the building sways too much and it sways for too long. We don't get a lot of damping there. So when you have a low damage structure, to then augment that with uh, energy dissipation devices. So um, very carefully designed, um, reliable um, energy dissipation or damping devices that can sit in those connections where the structure moves uh, and absorb energy during an earthquake but to do so in a way that's uh, very low damage, um, ideally completely repeatable and damage-free, such that uh, if, well, after the earthquake they've absorbed a lot of energy but they're in a position that they can stand up to the next earthquake without any problems. So what kind of things are these devices? Um, so there's a, a range of different things available. Um, one of the things that's been used a bit internationally is just a, a yielding steel component, so it's, it's kind of recreating the same sort of damage that exists, um, but doing so in a very an externally mounted device that can be very easily unbolted and a replacement bolted in. So that would still require some repair after an earthquake, but it could be done very rapidly. There's also things I've developed... One was um, sort of building on the, the likes of the lead rubber bearings that um, was done at Robinson Seismic and um, ran a lead extrusion damper. So that's uh, a repeatable extrusion process of, of lead. It's a bit like if you make Play-Doh spaghetti or if you squeeze toothpaste out of a tube, that's the extrusion process. Uh, but doing that in a repeatable manner and doing that with a material that's much stiffer than toothpaste or Play-Doh and then just using that, that extrusion process, the, the force that you put in and the energy you expend forcing that Play-Doh out the, 
at the orifice. Um, the same thing can be done on a, on a much grander scale um, to absorb energy during a, during an earthquake. So you're using lead instead of toothpaste? Is yes, that the idea? That's the, that's exactly it. Because yeah. lead is moderately soft. Uh, moderate soft compared to something like steel, but significantly stiffer than something like toothpaste or Play-Doh. And in that case, you had an earthquake, your, your lead, your toothpaste gets squeezed out. What do you have to do after the earthquake? Uh, it's done in a re- reversible manner. So there's a, a, basically a central shaft that runs through a device and it's it's a reversible extrusion. So, so it just pushes it from one side to the other? It does, as the building sways back and forward. Um, so it's still there and it hasn't been pushed into another chamber or anything. It's, it's ready to go and... And also looking at other things like um, some tension-only bracing, which has a ratcheting engagement mechanism, and also some new design of uh, viscous fluid devices. Obviously, with viscous fluid devices, they're used uh, a lot in things like vehicles, trucks, and cars. Um, and there are also there's a number of them available worldwide, specifically intended for structures. So what's the viscous fluid? It can be a range of things. It can be anything from a reasonably basic oil. Um, a lot of them use a silicone fluid. It's basically the same way in your car suspension, that as you go over a bump, that it absorbs energy, um, doing that on a, on a much bigger scale. The ones that have been used in structures, they generally tend to be reasonably basic damping behaviour. But if you look at a, a high-end mountain bike or a high-end race car, they have very specific damping characteristics to, to manage those forces in a very careful way. And that's some of the work we've done over the last few years, is trying to say, how can we customise that response of a viscous damper to, to try and actually optimise the structure? So there's a sense in which you can think of that what you do is a bit like you know, suspension on a mountain bike, but you're trying to provide suspension to an entire building. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's... I guess I have a unique position where I'm a mechanical engineer that works um, quite significantly in civil engineering applications. So the systems that you've been involved in developing, you're based in Christchurch, there's an awful lot of earthquake rebuilding going on. Are these systems being used in any of the rebuilds? Yeah, so there is quite a lot of uh, innovation that's been adopted within Christchurch. Um, so base isolation has seen a, a much bigger usage um, post-quake. Before the quake, Christchurch Women's Hospital was the only base isolated building that we had in, I think, in the South Island. And since the earthquake, we're seeing much more of those. We're seeing uh, much more use of uh, both base isolation and also dissipative braces, um, so not just having a rigid steel brace in a building, but also having a, the brace but having some sort of energy as a bit of element within that. Also things like rocking structures, rocking frame structures. Forte Health building is, is one. Are they more expensive to build than traditional buildings? That's, that's always a challenge. Um, the general feeling is that they, they may have a small cost premium, but not much. Yeah, that, that is a big part of our research, is to, to try and make sure that we don't just come up with some sort of gold-plated research solution which works great in a lab but isn't practical or economic. So that's, I guess, at the heart of a lot of what we do, is, is making sure that things are pragmatic and, and reasonable and economic to actually see uptake. Does it mean the buildings look any different from the outside? Could I tell, walking past, that they had these devices? Not necessarily. Um, it doesn't have to be the way, although the one thing that's actually very interesting and certainly something that's really been fascinating for some of the international collaborators that have come to Christchurch is that in the wake of the earthquakes, the, there is more and more sort of celebration of the structural frame. Like some of the buildings on uh, Cambridge Terrace, for example, with the rock and frames, you go in and it's in the elevator um, lobby, the entire rock and frame is visible, as, as are all the dissipative elements. And that's 
fascinating for some of our international collaborators because normally it's a case of um, do what you can to make the structure as good as possible but hide it behind the petition walls and things. And I, I think that's probably just primarily due to our recent experience that the, the public actually feels safer seeing the, the obvious signs of the seismic bracing in a building. Thanks, Jeff. That was Jeff Rogers. He's at the University of Canterbury and the MedTech Centre of Research Excellence. And that's all we've got time for tonight. But if you'd like to listen to those stories again or check out the web features, which include photos of dogs as well as the building that Jeff was talking about, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also find podcasts of our stories on the RNZ app and in all the usual places from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify. We also hang out on Facebook and Twitter, and our handle is RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.